If you were here last week, you remember that we will be preaching through the Gospel of Luke all through the summer, as well as into the fall. Luke's amazing stories and gospel provide for us and really a foundation for how we understand who Jesus is in Luke's own way and dealing in his own context to his particular church. Last week, if you remember, we heard the story about Jesus healing the centurion's son, the centurion being the Roman legion soldier, the oppressor of the Jews, and Jesus radically not only heals this centurion's son, this person who was in great power and authority and with great wealth, Jesus holds this centurion, again, not a Jew, as the greatest example of faith in all of Israel. And on the heels of that healing story comes this morning's from the seventh chapter of Luke, verses 11 through 17, and may God open up to us the surprising way God continues to raise the dead. Soon afterwards, Jesus went down to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went with him. As he approached the gate of the town, a man who had died was being carried out. He was his mother's only son, and she was a widow. There was a large crowd around her from town. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion for her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came forward and touched the buyer, that is, the stretcher upon which he had been placed, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say, rise. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized all of them, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has looked favorably upon his people. This word about him spread throughout Judea and all the surrounding country. The word of the Lord. The first part of our mission statement reads, Searching Thoughtfully. This morning I ask you to put on your thinking caps because it's going to take some thinking to get through it. At first blush, this story serves as just another one of those powerful stories about how God brings healing in the world, especially through his son Jesus, who has God-like powers to do the healing, even to raise people from the dead. All he does is touch him, and he overcomes the dark powers. He just reaches out and touches him on the stretcher, and the boy sat up. Wow. Now this will preach. I have Jesus on my side, and he will keep me well and even possibly save me from death if I just believe enough. I can always be protected as long as I keep that Bible on the front seat. In fact, the form of this sermon is 
proclaimed every week from the television, if you watch, it's called the prosperity gospel. Just believe in Jesus and everything you do will prosper and you will always be well. And while this sounds like a winner, we soon learn that life will not let us get away with it because life is a lot more complicated than that. There will come a time when Humpty Dumpty will fall off the wall and all the king's horses and all the king's men will not be able to put him back together again even if the king is the king of the Jews. As a pastor, you face this really quandary soon enough in your ministry. A loved one dies and you go to the family and all you have to go with is a prayer and a Bible scripture, a prayer of encouragement and consolation, some words of, of love, of help. You might even go with some advice about the grief that you will soon be facing. You help them work through the arrangements. But unless you are completely overcome with a messianic complex, a complete narcissist, you never go expecting for God to give you the power to raise that dead one up again. <coughs> Not at least. Literally. I remember my mentor in ministry telling the congregation in a very intimate and vulnerable moment the day he realized that he really did not have the power to raise people from the dead. He and his family were at a park in a boat. They had gone there for a picnic when his six-year-old son fell out of the boat into the water. His son could not swim. And it turns out neither could my friend and mentor. Instead of himself drowning, his 12-year-old daughter jumped in the water to try to save him. She found him at the bottom of the lake, eight feet down. She was able to wrestle him back up to the surface where they brought him back in the boat. And my friend and mentor began to try to resuscitate him with CPR. And, and his daughter stood there in the water holding onto the boat, screaming at him, Daddy, Daddy, pray to God, bring him back. And my friend did pray, and God did not bring him back. There was, from then on, a chasm between the two of them. She felt him to be a great imposter, not able to do what he proclaimed being able to do in the name of Jesus. And it took 30 years for them to finally come back together in a way where something new and healing was born. Pastors don't know what to do with these miracle stories in the Bible because we know we can't bring people back to life. We don't know what to do with them any more than you do. In our enlightened scientific world age, we are all left wondering what all this healing stuff is all about with Jesus. And are we supposed to take these stories literally, seriously, literally, that Jesus actually brought people back from the dead? Or, just figuratively and symbolically, that these stories are about the ultimate power of God through Jesus 
to claim the powers of darkness and chaos and all the many symbolic ways that death entered into life. And all I have to say, no to say, to answer the question, either or is yes, at least according to this text. A very reserved yes. Yes, but. Yes, but. Because I think, in the end, it's the wrong question. It's the wrong question. Because the more I read these stories of Jesus healing and bringing people back from the dead, the more I come to see that it's really something else entirely. It's really about something called the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. It's a political statement, really, especially in Jesus' day when Caesar was the king and he had the kingdom. Luke's gospel serves as a witness, uh, serves as this witness to the politics of Jesus' gospel about the message of the kingdom of God. And what he's saying is that in all of these stories of healing and raising, that the kingdom of God has come near for everyone, especially for those who, for some reason, mainly unfair, unjust reason. They had been told that they were the last ones in the whole wide world who should ever expect to be included in that kingdom. This came as very good political news. That they were, in fact, going to be a part of the party. Isn't that what politics is all about? Who gets to the party and who doesn't and what it takes to get there? And Jesus comes along and in these acts of healing redefines for the people in Judea the rules for what it means to be included. If you remember back in the fourth chapter, Jesus' first real sermon was to his own hometown synagogue when he got up and started proclaiming from Isaiah 61 that the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Later, even, he would say, when John the Baptist asks him, are you really the Messiah who is to come, or should we wait for another? Jesus sends back, well, you've seen, the blind see, the lame walk, the oppressed have been released, and the good news have had the poor, I mean, the poor have had the good news preached to them. And then he also says, and the dead have been raised. When those who are not supposed to be a part of something are healed or raised, they are in these stories always brought back into community and fellowship and economic stability within that community. It was a, it was a raising up back into status. And political or not, that's what the kingdom of God is all about. Every single act and healing that Jesus did, he did so because he was there to undermine the existing political power structures that oppress the down and out, the marginalized, the dispossessed, and the disinherited, the least, the last, and the lonely. And in this case, especially, we're told she's a widow. Think Taliban. The misogynistic culture, 
where women have no power except in their relationship with their family, their father, or if they're married, their husband. If their husband dies, their son. Without any of those, she has nothing. Any power and property she might own would be given back to her husband's family. A widow, we are told, no longer married, son, only son, has died, leaving her completely destitute and at the mercy of her hometown or her family. She would either be there merciful act, or she would have to stoop to some immoral living. Jesus is in this entourage, has just come from healing the centurion's son, and all the crowd are there, and it's this parade of life, and they're going in through the gate, and all of a sudden they come to this death procession, this funeral march. Out comes people carrying this cot upon which sits this man who's obviously dead, his mother's wailing, and Jesus stops and looks at her and has deep compassion on her. The word for it only is used three times, and it means the deepest heart guttural mercy you can muster. He had compassion on her, not the young man, but her, because he knew what this would mean for her and the rest of her life, completely dispossessed of all power. And he walks over, he puts his hand on the cot, and he says to the, to the young dead man, rise up. And he does. And the text says, not only does he rise up, he starts talking. Wouldn't you love to know what he started talking about right out of the chute? What, as if nothing had happened? Or what? He starts talking, which is to say he's completely revitalized. Her life has now been changed back into, you see, a place of power and possession, which is the point. And all the people there were incredibly moved and afraid. Afraid. Well, you'd be afraid if you saw such a miracle, but I think Luke is intimating to us that they are afraid because in this one act, Jesus has completely thrown over all of the cultural, societal standards that determine who was in and out. This woman was obviously out. Now she's back in. Good gracious, we better be afraid. You see, this is the primary problem of the dispossessed, of the poor and the marginalized and the outcast. All they can deal with is one question. What must I do in order to survive in a world where I have no authority? What can I do to keep from being annihilated? Jesus' proclamation and his mission was to these people above all. I came to the lost sheep of Israel, he said. He personally knew what it was like. He was marginalized. He was a Jew. He grew up under oppression from Rome. He knew what it was like to be poor. His father was a carpenter. He was little more than a peasant. He knew what it was like to be humiliated by the oppressors. The state of religion in Judaism was barely a blip as a state or as a religious power, about as much power as Haiti. 
And the primary question for all of Judaism was this, how do we survive and maintain our sense of self, who we are, against the powers of Rome? It's always the dilemma, as I said, of the marginalized and dispossessed of every age. African Americans have faced it, and some still do. Women have faced it, and some still do. Immigrants face it, the poor face it. How can you survive with some sense of self intact in a culture where you are powerless and marginalized? How can you preserve your self-esteem while not giving in to the immoral ways of violence and hatred? What attitude, what kind of faith is needed in the immoral ways of oppression while living as if you were still free spiritually and emotionally. This is the world that Jesus faced. He knew that in his own life, that there are basically two worldly answers to the question. And the first is acquiescence. Thinking caps here, thinking caps. As, as Dr. Kisling would say, are you listening? The first way is acquiescence. You just simply begin to look like and act like and take on the whole belief system of those in which you have been uh, pulled in, into oppression. You become like them. You give up your own sense of self, your own cultural values, all of that. You give in to the man. But of course the cost is that it means you lose yourself and your self-respect. In Jesus' day, the Sadducees are the ones, stereotypically, who took on this strategy. They represented mostly the upper class. They ran the synagogue. It was monopoly. They had all the power in Israel. They loved Israel, and they loved peace. They were the pro-government Syrian forces in today's language. They maintained their public peace with Rome, and they went about their own business and their choice was to work with the Romans by being like the Romans. I remember coming back from Montgomery, Alabama after visiting my parents in the early 70s, going back to college, and I had to stop for some gas on the way out of town, so I pulled into the exit to Tuskegee Institute, that wonderful black college in Alabama, and I pulled into the first gas station, and there I noticed on this exit to Tuskegee, a big sign in the window that said, George Wallace for governor. Now, for those of us who grew up then, we remember that George Wallace was not known as being a, an integrationist. An African-American man came out of the service station and introduced himself as the owner. George Wallace for governor, I don't get it. And he said, well, we've learned that the antidote for the venom of the snake we know is always safer than for the snake we don't know. It was his way to survive in that world. The other choice that Jesus knew about was to become a zealot. You could pick up arms and fight. You could resist with armed violence, and to do that you must minimize all contact with the enemy, you must 
pull out from all the cultural and social interaction, you become cult-like and sexy. Does this sound familiar? You close the windows and doors of the world around you, and your whole point then is, is, is that you religiously come to see yourself as a fanatic, and the ultimate response are acts of terrorism because you see that also holds the way out into the heavenly realm beyond you. What's a bomb? Those people are oppressors and if it takes me out, so much the better. This is the culture, acquiescence or armed violence. Yet Jesus' message was neither, not assimilation, not violent resistance, but nonviolent resistance through humility and love and forgiveness. No wonder they crucified him. Both the Zealots and the Sadducees. He's not, he's not resistant enough on the one hand, and he's he's too much of a subversive on the other. Jesus knew that the bomb for humiliation was always humility because if you're humble, there's no way to be humiliated. Jesus understood with profound wisdom that anyone who lets another person determine the quality of his or her inner life hands over to that person the keys to their destiny. If we hate someone or make them our enemy or carry a resentment, we are simply giving them power. Jesus knew that it is our reaction to things that determines another's ability to have power over us, and that the only real power we have is how we respond to our enemies. Forgive them seven times 70, he said. You see, this is the third way of Jesus. It's the Jesus way, the way that he found himself in, and the way upon which the church was founded. As he faced, and they faced, hostility and oppression in this Greco-Roman world, this is the work and the word and the redemption of Jesus Christ spread throughout the Gospels, especially in Luke. It is the spiritual truth and strength offered for every cast down, marginalized, dispossessed, disinherited, lost, least, or last person in the world that in the politics of God, in the kingdom of God, you will have a seat at the head of the table. Here's the way Howard Thurman wrote it, the great black preacher and mentor to Martin Luther King. He wrote this in the 30s. The basic fact is that Christianity, as it was born in the mind of this Jewish teacher and prophet, Jesus, appears as the only legitimate technique of survival for the oppressed. For in Jesus' life, his word and his actions announced the good news that in him was life, and the life was the life of all people. Wherever his spirit appears, the oppressed gather fresh courage, for Jesus has proclaimed that the three great threats, fear, hypocrisy, and hatred, need have no power over us, and that in the kingdom of God, the marginalized, the last and least, find their seats at the head of the table. If this is so, then the dead are raised all the time. Fifty years ago, June 12th, I was 10. 
Medgar Evers was getting out of his car in Jackson, Mississippi. He had been called there to try to bring good news to the poor and release to the captives of his black people in Mississippi. He's getting out of his car in the morning after breakfast and a man hiding in the bushes, Brian Delabetwith, with a high-powered rifle, waited for him to turn his back and fire upon him, send him down in his garage where he died in a pool of blood. His family could not raise him up, and neither could Jesus at that moment, but not at least in the way they wanted. But Jesus was there, and while he didn't raise Medgar Evans up, he did raise Medgar Evans' death up as the moment that turned the tide on the whole civil rights issue and got the law passed. Just as Jesus had raised up that widow's son and brought her back into society, so had God raised up this moment. And Brian Miller Beckworth, I think Jesus, like this dead son, met him too at the gate and brought him up out of the dark sleep of his racism into a new life, into the kingdom of God, just as much. No coincidence that Will Campbell died this past week, the great Baptist preacher who marched first in line in Selma and all the other marches. This great white Southern Baptist preacher, Will Be Done, was characterized after. He died. When he back then heard that Medgar Evers had been killed, he uttered in a lament those SOBs. And the editor of the newspaper, his close friend, who was basically, he called himself an atheist, but he was more an agnostic, looked at Will Campbell and said to him, Will, if you believe in Jesus Christ the way you say you do, and if, if you believe in his grace, then you also have to believe that Jesus loves Brian Della Beckwith just as much as he loves Medgar Evans. Will Campbell confessed in his book, Brother to a Dragonfly, I was raised up out of my dark death of stereotype and bigotry just as much as I was praying the Ku Klux Klan would be. But Jesus raised the dead. Jesus raises the dead every time something new is born out of death and racism and destruction. When a man loses his wife and wishes that he'd gone first and then finds something to connect himself to that set him feet moving, Jesus raises the dead. When a couple is in great conflict and they say the only way out is divorce and they get on their knees and they pray, and the next morning they wake up and say, let's go seek counseling, Jesus raises the dead. When a woman gets divorced from her husband because he's had an affair, and sometime down the road after great, great work is able to forgive him and let him go, Jesus raises the dead. Whenever people are brought back together in community and fellowship and relationship so that we are all God's children, Jesus raises the dead. When we are ever brought to this table where the communion cup has for us a sip and the bread has for us a piece of bread to say to us that we are included in God's kingdom, Jesus raises the dead. The, the, the dead. In all the places where we are found to be humble instead of fierce, contrite instead of proud, and forgiving instead of vengeful, Jesus raises the dead.
He's here now raising the dead always. Whether we believe it literally or spiritually, it's about the kingdom of God. And it's here. Let us bring forth the gifts of our lives and our labor.